Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. By the time she reached the hotel lobby screaming for help, Selena Quintanilla was drenched in blood and already pale. Lock the door, she will shoot me again, the 23-year-old said as she collapsed to the floor. Stunned, the hotel workers around her jumped to her aid and called for an ambulance. One worker, a man named Ruben de Leon, knelt beside Selena and tried to stop the bleeding. He asked her who had shot her. Her voice weak, Selena answered, Yolanda. Room 158. Those were her last words. Most of you have probably heard of Selena. Some of you surely know the basics of her case, that she was a Latina singer on the cusp of superstardom, whose fans not only predicted she would become a crossover sensation, but who would utter her name in the same breath as other international superstars like Gloria Estefan and Madonna. But instead of Selena becoming known worldwide for her music, she became best known for her tragic end. Never in the history of Corpus Christi has someone's death had this much impact. Thousands of people, not only from Texas, but from all over the country, are here to pay their last respects to Selena. Millions mourned her loss. Tens of thousands attended her funeral. People who had never even heard her name, much less her music, couldn't help but feel gutted when they learned about her story. It wasn't just that she had been murdered, though that was certainly enough to warrant the outpouring of grief that followed her death. All murders end a life prematurely, but there was something extra heartbreaking about Selena's death happening when it did. She was like a breath just inhaled, a sentence interrupted. So much more was expected for her. She was just beginning. And to make her death all the more tragic was the realization of who had pulled the trigger. A woman who swore her devotion to Selena. A woman Selena had trusted and embraced almost as much as a family member. Selena's death on March 31st, 1995, not only reminded people that life is finite and fragile and that beauty and talent aren't enough to keep anyone safe, but it carried with it a disturbing warning. Be careful whom you trust. When Marcella Zamora readied to give birth to her third and what would be her last child, she and her husband, Abraham Quintanilla Jr., were sure they were readying for their second boy. At home, they already had their oldest child, Abraham III, who went by A.B., as well as daughter Suzette, who'd been born in 1967. They were so sure that number three would be a boy that the couple didn't bother picking out a girl's name. It so happened that when they went to the hospital to give birth in Lake Jackson, Texas, they met another mom-to-be who had done the same, but with the opposite gender. She was certain she would be having a girl, and so she had picked out only a girl's name. When it turned out their predictions were biologically switched, they swapped names. 
That's how Selena became Selena. From the very beginning of her life, Selena was surrounded by music. Her dad, for one, made sure of it. Abraham himself was a musician, first singing with friends in high school. He was talented and ambitious, enough so that he dropped out of school to pursue a career, much to his mother's ire. In 1956, when he was about 17 years old, he joined a group called Los Dinos as a singer from a compilation of news stories. The name Los Dinos has been a part of Tejano music since the early 1950s. Back then, Selena's dad, Abraham Quintanilla, was one of the three lead vocals for a Tejano band that delved into top 40 music. The band occupied a weird space in which it was well-known locally, but also still small potatoes. In short, its name doesn't appear much in Texas newspapers until the early 1960s, when it's listed in performance lineups alongside other local bands. That's not to say it wasn't good. As the daughter of a local musician myself, I know local bands can be huge hits with local crowds and yet still rarely get mentioned in local newspapers. So it goes. Los Dinos, which means the guys, by the way, performed Tejano music, which is a sort of poppy fusion of a bunch of styles. You've got some polka in there, some rock and roll, some waltz, some country with Spanish vocals. Some people call it Tex-Mex, but doing so really seems to sort of water down what it is. It's the type of music that you don't have to like, necessarily, to still respect in terms of what it's aiming to do. It fuses so much together. Los Dinos had some decent success. Their first single was called So Hard to Tell, and hearing it, you can totally imagine it playing alongside some Buddy Holly or Richie Valens back in the day. So hard to tell. Los Dinos never quite broke into the mainstream. It sounds like there was a bit of a push and pull between what could make them huge nationally and what their local fans wanted to hear. Tejano music had Spanish singing. Spanish singing wasn't typically going to play alongside Buddy Holly in rural Ohio. Anyway, the group was still caught in a kind of limbo when, in 1961, Abraham had to duck out for a bit when he was drafted into the military. He rejoined two years later after he was discharged, but the band kept seeing members come and go until it finally dissolved. By 1970, Abraham had two children to support and music wasn't cutting it. He decided it was time to get a more traditional job. He was hired as a clerk at the local Dow Chemical plant. Later, he opened a family restaurant. He never set his guitar aside completely, however. At night, he would play at home, working to teach music to both A.B. and Suzette. Then one night, Selena, then just age six, came into the room and began to sing along. She had a sense of timing, you know, with the rhythm of the music. Uh, she was on pitch. And she sounded great for a a six-and-a-half-year-old girl. All the kids were talented, but Selena was a natural. Abraham recognized this as unique and tried to get some people he still knew in the business interested in it. But it's tough to convince people to put much stock into a six-year-old girl's singing future. I don't know about any other culture, but in the Latino culture, uh, there's a lot of male chauvinism. They didn't think that a female especially a young female like that, could draw a big crown. But Abraham was determined. He heard something special in his little girl's voice. Slowly, so did others. 
It wouldn't be long before Abraham had his three kids form a band with Selena on vocals, A.B. on bass, and Suzette on drums. The family's modest home was tweaked for the enterprise. They turned the garage into a music room. Bill Curtis from Dateline. By the time Selena was 12, the family had moved to Corpus Christi and the band had become a family business. This wasn't just fun and games, to be clear. The group forged by Abraham was a business venture from the start. We went through hard times and we had to turn to music as a means of putting food on the table. This is Selena talking about those early years in an interview. We started playing at a restaurant that my dad owned and eventually we started playing for you know, weddings and family affairs that my dad kind of forced us on him. <laughs> and it all happened from then, and we've been doing it ever since. Just as there had been push and pull with the original Los Dinos, there soon was push and pull with Selena y Los Dinos, as the family band was called. Selena was Latina, but she was American. She was born and raised in Texas. She wanted to sing the type of music she loved to listen to. Her dad, who was the group's manager and, as you heard Selena just say, called the shots on the venues they pursued, had a different sound in mind. Actually, I started singing country music, and uh, my dad got us into Tex-Mex music. Tex-Mex, again, is shorthand for Tejano, which Selena always admitted she didn't love at first. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. When when we first started singing, I really didn't like it. But it's the type of music you have to listen to in, in order for it to grow on you. Selena didn't even know Spanish when she started singing. She learned her songs her dad wanted her to sing phonetically. But from a business standpoint, Abraham's direction paid off. The group recorded its first album in 1983 when Selena was only 12. Things took off from there, but I want to make clear it wasn't exactly smooth sailing. Tejano music was dominated by men, and a lot of clubs were reluctant to hire a band with a woman singer, much less a young girl. The concern was that women wouldn't be able to entertain a crowd or hold the audience's interest as much as a man. Selena proved them wrong. It didn't take long for the Hano music lovers to take notice of this young girl from Corpus Christi. He soon dropped her last name and helped her become the Hano Music Award Female Vocalist and Entertainer of the Year. Her gigs quickly rose in profile. She and the band went from playing in restaurants to serving as opening acts for bigger names to being the headliner. Her fashion sense caught on, too. She developed a flashy, bodycon kind of style that became as recognizable as her voice. When you watch her performances and interviews, either in English or Spanish, which she finally did learn around 1990, there's no missing the it factor that her father said he saw in her from the moment she sang along with her siblings at age six. And she's personable and vulnerable. When she smiles, her face beams in that Julia Roberts sort of way that's just infectious. I think what won me over the most was how funny and self-deprecating she could be. I found a series of compilations of interview snippets with her titled Funny Slash Diva Moments. In one, she's talking about a new perfume she plans to launch soon. There's also going to be a perfume that's going to be coming out, the Selena perfume, and it's going to smell like uh, chorizo and huevos. <laughs> it's going to smell like sausage and eggs. I kind of love that. In another video, she notices that the mic on her interviewer's lapel is messed up. Yes. Do you want me to fix this for you? Oh, yeah. It'll be here. Look up. Thank you. No, don't worry about it. 
She doesn't think twice about it. It's just a very down-to-earth moment. Selena's brother, A.B. You can just generally feel her vibe, the good person that she was, the smile she always had for anybody, and her just way of being and her aura. I mean, I think that people are attracted to that kind of stuff, and she definitely had that it factor. Anyone paying attention knew she was destined for fame. Her magnetism drew all sorts of people close to her, including the woman who would end her life. By 1988, Selena y los Dinos had taken Tejano music by storm. I found a story published in a Texas newspaper in July of that year that began, quote, Not since Michael Jackson and his old Jackson Five days could you find a singer and performer who had piled up so much experience and counted so many accolades in his or her field before turning 17. That's the best way to describe Selena Quintanilla. The photo with this story, by the way, shows Selena in peak 80s form. Her jaw-length hair is poofy and curly. She's wearing a crop jacket with zebra-stripe accents. She has on a miniskirt atop painted-on vinyl tights. Anyway, the writer of the story, Bob Lathan, notes the many awards she'd already won at this point in her career. Nods with titles like Female Vocalist of the Year and Female Entertainer of the Year. It mentions her, quote, record-setting showing in the Tejano Music Awards in San Antonio, end quote. And it says she's on pace to buck the trend of male dominance in Tejano music. The writer emphasizes several times that this was a lot to accomplish by age 17. Little did he know that Selena only had five more years left to live. The instrument of her destruction entered her orbit in 1991. Then 31 years old, Yolanda Saldivar was a decade and change older than the rising pop star. She had become a Tejano music fan in the mid-1980s and wasn't keen on Selena at first, largely because Selena kept beating out everyone else on the award circuit. The story goes that a niece convinced Saldivar to attend a show, and Saldivar was bowled over. She looked to buy a t-shirt at the event, but saw no merchandise. Soon after, she began calling Abraham and offering to launch a fan club for her new favorite singer. This is Abraham speaking. We met Yolanda back in 1991. That first initial encounter with her was just a voice on the telephone. Her pitch was this. She would promote Selena through this fan club. Fans who signed up would pay a sort of entry fee, and in return, they'd get swag. A t-shirt with Selena's name on it, behind-the-scenes info from shows, heads-up notifications about upcoming gigs, that sort of thing. Saldivar said the family clearly was too busy with shows and albums and that sort of stuff, so she said, look, I can tackle all this, cover my costs, and any proceeds will be donated to charity. It's a win-win, she said. Abraham figured, why not? Yolanda did a pretty good job of getting people to join. This is Joe Nick Petoskey, author of Selena, Como la Flor, in an interview for a show called Fatal Encounter. The numbers grew. I mean, it grew into the thousands pretty quickly. Saldivar seemed devoted to Selena. She was like an evangelist spreading the Selena gospel. Abraham again. We would invite her to come eat at our house. And we'd have a get-togethers and we'd invite her. And she wasn't quite a member of the family. I mean, this was a tight-knit crew, after all, so that designation was sacred. But she was as close as a non-Quintanilla could be. 
She was so trusted, in fact, that when the idea surfaced for Selena to sell her style through a new boutique in Corpus Christi, Abraham said his thoughts turned to Saldivar. And I'm the one that suggested. Well, what about that girl that runs a fan club in San Antonio? She looks pretty, you know, like a nice person. And that's how Yolanda came into the picture. Selena, etc. opened its first location in January of 1994, soon followed by another boutique in San Antonio. These weren't just clothing stores. They featured in-house beauty salons and sold hair and nail products. On the clothing side, which was the heavier focus, to be sure, Selena worked with designer Martin Gomez to manufacture the sassy styles she loved wearing on stage. Selena liked bling, as evidenced by the gemstones and pearls sewn into her bra tops. The performer Selena was sort of the antithesis of another major fashion happening of the mid-90s, the grunge era. That said, the regular Selena, the one you would see in more casual interviews, would often wear clothes closer to that laid-back, flannel-happy style. I think that's part of why people responded to her so much. She could be both glamorous and accessible. Saldivar accepted the new job. It was a departure for her career-wise. She began studying nursing in the late 1970s and was registered with the Texas Board of Nurse Examiners. It was tougher back then to search lawsuits and do general background checks, so it's likely that the Quintanillas did know she had been sued a couple of times in civil court. In one suit, a dermatologist she had worked for claimed she'd stolen some $9,200 from her. The doctor, Faustino Gomez, later told a judge that Saldivar had worked for him from 1980 to 1983. In December of 82, he said he wrote her a check for $200 as a Christmas bonus, but when the check was cashed, the figure had been changed to $500. A few weeks later, his office was ransacked, but there were no signs of forced entry, and aside from Gomez and his wife, the only person with a key was Saldivar. He fired her after that and recouped the $9,200 he said she stole from him via an insurance complaint. In another lawsuit, Saldivar was accused of failing to repay a student loan to the tune of $7,300. In short, if Selena's family had known Saldivar's full story, they might not have been so trusting with her, especially when it came to financial issues. But they had no idea. After the boutiques opened, they caught on pretty quickly. Bills weren't being paid, you know, and, and I tell her, what's going on? She goes, she'd say, I send that check. That's designer Martin Gomez, no relation to the dermatologist I just mentioned. At first, Selena didn't seem worried. She was already a bit removed from the business side of things. She was the artist, after all, and pretty busy with that aspect of her career. Selena trusted her. She was trusting. She was caring. She was very naive. You know, and Yolanda jumped on that. But Martin was worried. He said Saldivar seemed to have two personalities, one she displayed when Selena was near and another when she wasn't. And they couldn't have been more opposite. Near Selena, she was doting and kind. As one family member said, Selena would ask Saldivar to jump and Saldivar would three times, no questions asked. But when Selena left, she'd be rude and condescending to the others in her orbit. Martin said she instructed him not to communicate with Selena without going through Saldivar first. She was manipulative. She was mean. 
She was evil. She was trying to put a barrier between Selena and I, and Selena and anybody, you know? And um, it, it just got really bad towards the end. Everyone near Selena knew that the situation with Saldivar was coming to a head, but Selena herself was reluctant to believe it. And if you think about it, you can see where she's coming from. If you genuinely like and trust someone in your life, you might hear other people's complaints about them, but you might wonder, maybe it's a personality clash or a misunderstanding since you yourself haven't had those types of bad experiences with this person. Even the people who didn't like Saldivar didn't fear her. They thought she was an obsessed fan, but not a dangerous one. After all, Saldivar had tied her own success to Selena's, so they couldn't have imagined a scenario in which Saldivar would bite the hand that had been feeding her. When you look at everything that was happening from 1993 to early 1995, Selena really was on the cusp of something huge. The timeline goes something like this. In 1993, she'd won so many Tejano Music Awards that newspapers began referring to her as La Reina de Tejano, or Queen of Tejano, a title she unwillingly usurped from Laura Canales, who had been the biggest female Tejano star up until Selena's arrival. Selena performed for the first time at the Astrodome that year, too. In January of 1994, Selena's boutiques began to open. She appeared as a singer in the movie Don Juan de Marco with Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando. In March of 1994, the 36th annual Grammy Awards happened. The Grammy goes to live Selena. The category was Best Mexican-American Album, and Selena was the first woman to win it. Selena talking about that moment later. They announced me as the winner. I was like, oh my God, we all stood up and we screamed. And I was wearing this crystal beaded gown, and I remember going down this, you know, because it's kind of on a slant, and thinking, gee, Selena, if you fall, <laughs> you're going to be so embarrassed. Don't fall, because it had like this fishtail in the back of it, and I was trying to be all cool walking up there. And it was great. I mean, thinking back now, I mean, it's an experience I will never forget. On a personal note, by the way, she got to share that moment with her still new husband. In 1992, she had married her band's guitarist, Chris Perez. As all of this was happening, some of Selena's biggest hits were released. Songs like Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb, Como La Flor, and Amor Prohibido. And she was working on an English-language album, too, a release that some predicted would catapult her into the stratosphere. But as she approached that threshold, she had some housekeeping to do. She, her sister Suzette, and her father Abraham finally confronted Saldivar about financial discrepancies related to both the fan club and the boutiques. On March 9, 1995, the three had a meeting with Saldivar. Abraham told her he planned to contact the police. Saldivar left that meeting promising to turn over financial documents that would prove she was innocent of what they accused her of. Four days later, she bought a gun. After the March 9, 1995 meeting, Yolanda Saldivar was replaced as president of Selena's fan club, and steps were being taken to basically replace her entirely from the Selena universe. Abraham Quintanilla, Selena's dad, said that his threat to contact police was an empty one, but he also wasn't going to take this betrayal lying down. 
We were going to fire her, mm -hmm. but I wasn't going to prosecute her. I was, you know, angered uh, at the moment because she, uh, everything that I showed her and asked her about it, she had no, no answer for it. And I was frustrated because we knew that she was lying. Abraham removed Saldivar from bank accounts and managerial duties. Selena, meanwhile, seemed to hold on to hope that this was all a big misunderstanding. She continued talking with Saldivar to get the documents that not only would supposedly clear her of malfeasance, but that Selena needed to file taxes. This is March, remember, and tax filings are due in April. The boutiques had just opened that year, so this was a new business and Saldivar had been trusted with everything. Selena, ever the optimist, said that once all the issues were sorted, maybe she could find a spot for Saldivar in the business in a different capacity. Maybe she could run a third boutique that was slated to open in Mexico in coming months. It was actually in an interview talking about this expansion that the sausage and eggs perfume comment came. Expansion plans there too as well? Yes, um, we are negotiating right now to be franchising out. There's also going to be a perfume that's going to be coming out, the Selena perfume, and it's going to smell like uh, chorizo and huevos. <laughs> in the weeks after the March meeting, Selena kept asking for the financial documents. Saldivar agreed to bring them to Corpus Christi, where she got a room at a Days Inn motel. On March 30th, Saldivar called Selena and said she had the documents, come and get them. Selena drove there with her husband, Chris Perez, who waited for her in the car. While in the motel, Saldivar apparently told Selena some upsetting news. She said that when she had recently gone to Mexico to do some work on the upcoming boutique, she'd been sexually assaulted. While the details of this visit with Selena are a bit murky, we know that Saldivar did hand over some documents to Selena that night, who left the motel with her husband, only to realize that the documents provided weren't the ones she needed. Selena reached back out to Saldivar to say, hey, I need the papers I actually asked for, and Saldivar said she needed to go to the hospital to be examined because of the assault. Selena agreed to take Saldivar to the hospital the next morning. But if that examination was meant to bring the alleged assault into focus, it did anything but. This is one of the examining nurses talking in a documentary called Fatal Encounter. Yolanda told me that she had been assaulted in Mexico and hit with a bat. From what I could see, there was no injuries that fit that pattern. Saldivar said she was still wearing the clothes she'd been assaulted in, but staffers thought it appeared the damage done to those clothes had come from a pair of scissors, not an attack. She also told them that she'd bled a little, which got a reaction from Selena, who said, wait, you told me you bled a lot. After the examination, Selena circled back to one of the nurses and asked if she believed Saldivar had been assaulted. The nurse said she told Selena it wasn't her job to question whether or not something like that happened. Her job was to assume it had and treat accordingly. But the question itself stuck with the nurse, who later said, And then I thought to myself, right at that point, wow, she's got a doubt. Whatever the truth about the alleged assault, hospital workers in Corpus Christi had a problem. The attack purportedly happened in Mexico, and while Saldivar was a Texas resident, she didn't live in the same county as Selena. In short, there were jurisdictional issues, and the nurses there said they couldn't give her a rape kit test there. Selena took Saldivar back to the Days Inn. While we can't know precisely what happened, we know the two argued. People outside of the room later reported hearing their voices raised. 
The forensic evidence shows that Selena was turned away from Saldivar and walking toward the open hotel room door when Saldivar fired a 38 caliber revolver at her back. The bullet severed her subclavian artery, so with every heartbeat, she lost copious amounts of blood. Still, she managed to run nearly 400 feet out the door, past the motel pool and into the lobby, where she finally collapsed as she screamed for help. The worker who called 911 said there was so much blood that she felt herself get nauseated from the sight of it. Police were on scene within minutes of the 11.50 a.m. phone call. They found Saldivar in her truck, threatening to kill herself. Police Chief Henry Garrett talking to reporters that night. She's been in there for over eight hours now. We're going to, and we're continuing talking to her, continuing to no, negotiate with her. And the whole idea is to get her out without, without any uh, harm to her. Eventually, Saldivar surrendered. By then, Selena was long gone. She had lost too much blood too quickly. Medics worked hard to revive her, probably harder than they would have had she not been such a beloved figure in the community, frankly. They gave her blood transfusions, something her father Abraham later said Selena wouldn't have wanted because the family had been Jehovah's Witnesses, and one of their beliefs is that you can't save a life by way of another person's blood. Later, Abraham's strong reaction to news of the blood transfusions was misinterpreted. Here he's speaking to Houston radio personality Robert Rivas in 2014. To this day, I've seen magazines that said that Selena died because her father didn't want to give her blood. She was already dead. And the doctor even said, he said, we open her chest up and we massage her heart to try to see, but her veins had already collapsed. She had bled to death at the motel. If the bullet had entered her back a little bit lower, her odds of survival would have been much better. But the severing of that subclavian artery made the injury impossible to survive. A star faded away today. Tejano music queen Selena has been gunned down in Corpus Christi. We'll take you to Lake Jackson where she grew up and left her mark. Looking at old footage, it strikes me that Abraham, who had as Selena's manager as well as her father, long been a spokesman for her as a musician, is the one who continued to speak the most on her behalf in death, the day she was shot. My daughter, Selena, was killed this morning by a disgruntled employee. And uh, right now, uh, I don't know all the details. But the public didn't hear much from Selena's mother, with whom the star had been exceptionally close. Marcella was a quiet force in her daughter's life. It's clear from researching her background a bit that she always put others first. While Abraham was often mentioned in articles about Selena, the first time I found Marcella's name in newspapers was after Selena's death. I know Marcella grew up in Washington. I found a high school photo of her that would have been taken not long before she met and married Abraham. She supported him through his days of trying to reach stardom through the original Los Dinos, and she supported Selena in much the same way. Even after Selena's death, she rarely said much publicly beyond thanking Selena's fans and a voice reporters described as quiet and restrained. Now, the criminal case in Selena's death was never a whodunit. Not only had Selena's last words been to name her killer, others in the motel reported seeing Saldivar follow Selena out of the room with the gun still in her hand. And then there was the hours-long standoff that the news reporter mentioned earlier. Police officers and SWAT team members are still trying to negotiate the alleged killer. 
You could hear her crying and a lot of whimpering. Saying that she she had done something real bad to her friend. She made it clear that whatever happened to her, she didn't mean it. To prosecutors, this was an open and shut case. Their theory was that Saldivar had concocted the story about being assaulted in Mexico. One of the prosecutors said, We think Yolanda's motivation was to get sympathy from Selena and maybe things could turn around and Selena would forgive her for what was going on. Though the state tried to get evidence about Saldivar's previous embezzlement allegations admitted into the murder trial, the judge blocked them. The allegations, after all, had been made some 10 years prior and never resulted in a criminal conviction. Saldivar pleaded not guilty, but had made incriminating statements to police during the standoff and subsequent interrogation. It took jurors just two hours to convict her. She was sentenced to life in prison and is eligible for parole as soon as 2025. In the intervening years since her conviction, she's made news with several different explanations of what happened that day in 1995. At one point, she said she had incriminating videotapes and a diary of Selena's that would prove her innocence. Those have never surfaced. At another point, she told a reporter that Selena wasn't mad at her at all that day in the Days in motel room. In fact, she said it was she, Saldivar, who had said she had to quit, and that prompted Selena to drop to her knees and beg Saldivar to stay with her. Saldivar said she put the gun to her own head in a threat of suicide, and that somehow, when Selena was leaving the room, she accidentally fired the gun. While there's audio recording of Saldivar making these statements, I'm not going to give her voice a platform here because none of those explanations make any logical sense, and it seems to me she just likes the attention. And besides, the focus should stay on Selena. The outpouring after her death was widespread and heartfelt. You can hear it in the voices of fans in this KHOU 11 news clip. I just broke out in tears and I couldn't believe it and I still can't believe it. I'm still in shock. Fans lit candles as they joined together to say goodbye to their young star. The, the phones are still ringing off the wall, and I mean, we have to do something. We're not down in Corpus. It's really hard. That Everyone's confused. They don't know what to do. It's, it's totally been unbelievable. When American shock jock Howard Stern was flippant about the death, saying her music was awful anyway, and then playing some of it atop the sounds of gunfire, he was quickly denounced and ultimately apologized. Even people who had never heard of Selena were moved by news of such a promising life cut so senselessly short. A few months after she died, Selena's much-anticipated crossover album, Dreaming of You, was released. She hadn't totally finished it, so the four tracks she'd recorded for it were supplemented with previously released material, as well as a few unreleased tracks from earlier in the 90s. The album was a huge success, debuting at the top of the United States Billboard 200, marking the first time a predominantly Spanish-language album did so. Selena lives on not just through her music, but through her family's efforts to keep her memory going. They run a Selena Museum in Corpus Christi, and earlier this year released a posthumous album called Moonchild Mixes. Siempre voy pensando, pensando en ti, y me lleno de alegría, pero no estás aquí. 
triste y tonta. To research this case, I got help from Mexico-based journalist Laura Tillman, author of the true crime book, The Long Shadow of Small Ghosts, Murder and Memory in an American City. Tillman compiled a variety of newspaper accounts, most notably from Texas Monthly, the Dallas News, and the New York Times, and sifted through performance and interview snippets online. I watched a few documentaries as well, including HLM's Fatal Obsession, a couple of Dateline episodes, and contemporary news reports from KHOU 11, a Houston news channel. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.